Today's episode, we have Dr. Ralph Esposito joining us. In today's episode, we're going to talk about testosterone. Now, men are fascinated with testosterone. Go to any go to any man. First thing when they get blood work done is, what was my test? They're not asking about estrogen. They're not asking about cholesterol. They're not asking about blood pressure. They want to know what their testosterone was. As men, we're obsessed with testosterone. So we're going to have a conversation today with Dr. Ralph Esposito about testosterone, about testosterone replacement therapy, what's normal, what should be concerned about things like that. So Dr. Ralph, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you guys. I, I appreciate you guys having me on and I'm listening to a few little things that I know. So tell us a little bit about um, what it is that you do. Cause we, we got a hold of you. Um, are you on social media? Do you have a practice? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we go ahead and uh, hit the user questions. Absolutely. So, I am a naturopathic physician. I'm also a uh, licensed acupuncturist. So I practice traditional Chinese medicine. So I, I take a little bit of the uh, East Coast medicine or East Eastern medicine, mixing it with Western medicine. I'm also a functional medicine practitioner. So I did my training at the Institute of Functional Medicine. And then while I was um, doing my naturopathic training, I trained uh, as a medical intern at the uh, New York University Integrative Urology Center. So I was working there, basically uh, learning, doing research, and also working with patients on most everything men's health related from you know, prostate cancer to prostate pain to low testosterone to hormone issues. You know, I was always fascinated with hormones, and it's just people always ask me, you know, why did you choose this? And it just makes complete sense to me. And typically, we're attracted to the things that we are typically naturally good at. And uh, hormones was just something that is how my brain works. My brain works in pathways and networks. So I started um, becoming, you know, fascinated with that, worked on a few textbook chapters and publications while I was at NYU. And then eventually um, took a position here in New York City, working as a medical consultant and a research analyst uh, for a practice here. So um, don't see my own patients, but I work with um, other doctors and guiding them on, on their patient care because hormones can get very, very complicated. So right off the bat, I know, I know Trevor has questions, but right off the bat, I have to ask this. What is the first thing that you're noticing uh, right now that's going on with these patients that are going to doctors with these hormonal complaints? What is the first thing? Is it libido? It, what, what, what kind of things is the energy, libido? What is the first complaints that you're getting? And we're talking about men? Yeah, let's stick, let's stick with men on this. Mm -hmm. And then if there's something on women, you, you can definitely tell us as well. Yeah, so this actually applies to both genders. But uh, low libido or um, low energy would be the two main symptoms that you would see coming off right off the bat. For some men, they'll say, I have low libido. What they really mean is that I have erectile dysfunction. And so what they're basically saying is I can't maintain or get an erection um, for intercourse. And that's what you'll see most men complaining of. And they very rarely are, they very rarely want to open up to it, right? It's, it's a little bit embarrassing. It's like, wait, hold on. I, I'm 40 years old. This should not be happening. And you know, 20 years ago, I was perfectly fine. So you'll see Definitely low libido, and especially in women as well. The thing with women, and, and most practitioners get this wrong, is that they think that low libido on women has a lot to do with testosterone. But in fact, that's uh, the research and the evidence doesn't seem to agree that that's the case. So with women, you know, people always ask me, like, what is a smarter species? And I <laughs> definitely think women, their, um, their hormonal system is much more complicated. So when you tell me that a woman's having, you know, um, low libido, it's not just hormonally related, but with men, it's strongly hormonally related. So, I mean, what's, because we all have wives, girlfriends, um, those of us who are straight and maybe we'll experience this one day. What, what would cause low libido in women? What's the cause of that? Is it something emotional? 
Yeah. So typically in women, you know, one of my best friends um, and brilliant physician, Dr. Carrie Jones, she basically showed me a picture. We actually spoke at a conference in October in New York on sexual dysfunction. And she said, men, it's basically one switch on and one switch off. And with women, it's 10 switches and three dials. And it's, it's not as simple as that. So with women, it's certainly hormonally related. Um, but there's also a uh, emotional or psycho, uh, psychosomatic relationship. So the way that brain impacts their body functions. Uh, and then there's also a neurological aspect too, because sensations and pain can also be contributing to what women are experiencing during intercourse or even just not being in the mood. You know, if, if you ate something that made you feel like crap, you probably would stick away from that one thing. And past experiences with some women can say, well, this was painful. It was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. Uh, and that has an impact on their future experiences. But that also works for men too, because, you know, some men who are, I, I see men all the time who are in their early twenties, early thirties, and they're having erectile dysfunction. There's no physical uh, issue going on with them, but it's a psychological issue because, you know, they were at a bar one time where they were out, they were drinking a ton of beer, or a ton of drinks. They went home with somebody or went home to their girlfriend and couldn't perform. Well, that's, that's alcohol induced uh, sexual dysfunction, but now it's in their head and they constantly think about that every time it happens. That, that, that's basically my question for you, Dr. Ralph, is that most of the people listening to this podcast, they have the similar goals. You know, they want to feel good. They want to look good. They want to optimize body composition. They want to have good energy, good libido, things like that. As men, we're obsessed with testosterone, right? Everyone wants to know their testosterone score. Everyone wants to talk testosterone replacement therapy. How important is actually testosterone? Because I mean, testosterone is just one hormone in the body. Like obviously testosterone is important, but are there other key hormones men should be looking at if they're feeling low energy? Are there other key hormones that are important with optimizing body composition? What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. So uh, the first thing that men look at is their testosterone levels. And the first thing that I look at is their, or the two things that I look at are number one, their thyroid, and number two, their adrenal function. So I'm sure you guys heard the term adrenal fatigue all the time. Um, I am not a fan of that term and, and think go ahead and claim somebody has adrenal fatigue, um, which is kind of insinuating that the adrenal glands are not working. And, and in fact, that's not true, nor is it uh, very common. But doctors throw it around like it's just, a, you know, a buzzword. It's like, oh, you have adrenal fatigue or my adrenals are shot, which like makes me cringe when people say that. Um, so I look at the adrenal function and I use a hormone, uh, urinary hormone testing. And then I also look at their a thyroid function. Why do I look at those two things? Well, your adrenal glands have a lot to do with your stamina, right? And, and I'm not talking about stamina, like can you run four miles or five miles? I'm talking about stamina in terms of are you having the uh, energy to feel focused, to feel vibrant, to feel energized throughout the day. So that's the type of uh, stamina that I am referring to. And your thyroid hormone is essential for every single cell in your body to function properly. So in order for your thyroid, for your, uh, your body to make proper testosterone, something called your lytic cells, in order for those cells to actually make testosterone, they require free, uh, free T3 or free lyothyronine, which is going to be necessary to get that message across. So those are the two things that I would look at that often, if you correct those, the testosterone will autocorrect. So Dr. Ralph, thyroid hormones are pretty easy to test. I'm guessing you probably just do blood work, test TSH, T3, T4. Adrenal testing, that's something that there's a lot of debate on. Some people do salivary amylase testing. Some people will test cortisol what do you think is the best quantitative measure to actually test adrenal function? Yeah. So the best test, um, which, you know, I, I have no affiliation with this lab, but it's uh, called Dutch or precision analytical and it's a dried urinary hormone test. And now a lot of other labs are doing it as well. ZRT. Um, I think Genova or doctor's data, they're starting to use urine testing. And the reason why is because when you um, measure blood levels of cortisol, you're getting total cortisol. That means nothing to me because a lot of that cortisol can be bound to cortisol binding protein, which means it's inactive. 
So I don't care about how much is inactive. I want to know how much is actually active. You can't really test cortisone, which is the metabolite, one of the metabolites of cortisol in the blood. And you can't test the other metabolites of cortisone and cortisol in the blood. So number one, blood tests are inaccurate or invaluable or have no value in uh, adrenal testing or cortisol testing. Then you look at the salivary testing. Well, your salivary glands can actually metabolize some of your cortisol and it can convert it into the cortisol metabolites. So if your salivary test is supposed to be testing cortisol, but some of that is being converted, then you're missing a lot of it in your saliva. The thing with your urine is that your bladder is a reservoir. So if you went to bed at 10 o'clock and you urinate at 10 o'clock at night and you don't wake up until the next day, well, all of the urine in your bladder is holding on to metabolites and toxins and anything that was accumulating overnight over that eight-hour period. And what you can do from that urinary test is actually measure cortisol. You can measure cortisone, which is the metabolite of cortisol via an enzyme called 11-beta HSD. And then you can measure the metabolites of each one of those. So the something called THF and THE, which are metabolites of cortisone and cortisol. And now you're getting a complete picture of what, how much cortisol was occurring over a 24-hour period, because you take about four samples, which is an excellent proxy for 24-hour, like collecting all of your urine over 24 hours. And then also you're seeing the activity of the enzymes that actually convert a lot of this cortisol. So you can, by understanding the uh, products, you can understand the substrate or the, the, the thing that's being converted into, and then understand how the enzymes are working, which has a big influence or is influenced significantly by your thyroid hormone and your uh, inflammation and your nutrient status. So you get a lot of information from that. That's really interesting. How much does something like that cost? I think the test runs around, I, I don't quote me on this. I think it's around $300. Um, but it also includes organic acids in it as well. So I, I sound like a salesman for them. I, I promise. I don't, I don't work for these guys. Um, you, I just, you got a coupon code. You want to play with something? <laughs> I wish I did. I, I don't. Um, but the, uh, the testing also includes organic acids. So you can get a look at, you know, methylmalonic acid and xanthoranic acid and pyroglutamate um, and, you know, other neurotransmitter and nutrient uh, metabolites. I got one more question, then I'll let Steve jump in. Um, so when you get blood work done, it's pretty idiot proof, right? Because they'll give you your result, they'll give you the reference values, and you can see if you know you're above, you're below, or things like that. Now with this urine test, if someone were to get that done, will it give you the reference range so you can see if you're normal, if you're high, if you're low? And yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about it is it adjusts it based on your, um, I believe, on your weight and your age. So my cortisol levels is not the same, should not be in the same range as somebody who's 80 or 70. And we can say the same thing about blood work as well, which is a whole different conversation. But yes, it is uh, adjusted based on your individual anthropometrics. I want to get back to blood work for sure, because I have a bone to pick with mm -hmm. a lot of things related to blood work. And I kind of want to you know, get your perspective on things. But before we do, you said, you know, you brought up an interesting um, topic earlier about erectile dysfunction. I definitely want to dig more into this um, because we see this a lot. We see guys all the time. Obviously, you know, we're, we're a fitness forum, and that's probably the number one complaint guys have. And they seem to always target, you know, testosterone for it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's just one of the things. It may, you know, even if you fix your testosterone levels and go on TRT or whatever, there's still other factors that cause erectile dysfunction. And one of them that I believe is, because I know this from personal experience, is stress. Like if I'm stressed out, that issue comes up. And also if I'm in poor heart health, like, you know, I can look throughout my life, like when I've been in the worst shape, that's been more of a problem. But when I'm in great shape, it's not. So I always view it as erectile dysfunction has something to do with blood flow. Is blood flow going to the penis and if you have heart problems, which a lot of men have, obviously heart disease is growing and growing, wouldn't that cause erectile dysfunction? Absolutely. So yes, now it also depends on the age of the individual. 
So I would say the there's there's so organic uh, excuse me uh, erectile dysfunction is categorized in three major categories: either organic, um, uh, physiologic, which is organic is physiologic, um, psycho psychological, and then mixed. So when you look at the things that you're mentioning, those are more physiologic. And well, the, the cardiovascular is more physiologic or organic. And actually a study just came out two days ago, I believe, uh, showing that men who have a increased carotid uh, intima medial thickness, which is basically you know, how uh, thick the intima layer of their carotid arteries are, which are the arteries in your neck that go to your brain, the, the uh, higher the score, so the thicker that they are, which is an indicator of more atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, the higher prevalence of erectile dysfunction and the less likely that Viagra will be helpful. So Viagra, which is a drug, um, which is a a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor, which basically it helps uh, expand your blood vessels. When that doesn't work, that tells me that there could be a psychological, uh, excuse me, a physiologic issue going on. There could be a cardiovascular issue going on. So you're absolutely right in suggesting that cardiovascular health is a big indicator or something that you need to pay attention to for uh, erectile dysfunction. Now, the other part was the, the stress aspect. And yeah, absolutely right. Stress is a, it's not so much stress. So when you say stress, you know, that, that term is thrown around very loosely. You know, you go to the doctor and like, well, you know, why did I have this, you know, skin breakout. Oh, it's stress. Well, what kind of stress? Are we talking about a physiologic stressor, like no sleep? Are we talking about a psychological stressor, like somebody screaming in your ear every day? Are we talking about a financial stressor? Are we talking about social stressor? So somebody who's isolating themselves all the time um, or an environmental stressor, like in, uh, environmental toxins. Right? These are all types of stressors. So when you say stress, I say, which one? I think what you're talking about is, you know, the overworked, uh, your your brain kind of being in overdrive all the time, feeling like you have a lot to do and having you know anxiety or panics, right? And that can be related to epinephrine. And epinephrine is the number one erection killer. If you want to reduce your erection and you increase epinephrine, and there's a, a clear mechanism for that, is that in order for you to have an erection, the, there are certain vessels and veins in your penis that need to be open and closed, and, and epinephrine actually reverses that. So it allows more blood flow out and less blood flow in. So epinephrine, which can be stimulated by stress, will cause erectile dysfunction. Uh, and you see this a lot in men who overdose on caffeine or pre-workouts. And I know a lot of your listeners are probably using pre-workouts, and which have tons of caffeine in them and probably other stimulants as well. Uh, you really need to double check and make sure that you're not overdoing it on that realm because that is going to stimulate a physiologic stressor. What about sleep? Number one, sleep is the number one tool or correction of sleep is the number one thing that I focus on with men with, with low testosterone, uh, uh, rectal issues, sexual dysfunction, adrenal issues. Like there, there is nothing that gets better with less sleep. Everything improves as your sleep improves. Now, uh, there was one study, and I've quoted this many, many times before. I, I probably should have memorized the authors and title of the studies by now. But, but basically what they did was they took uh, two groups of men, they sleep deprived one group, and uh, then they gave another group um, testosterone replacement therapy, exogenous testosterone. And then the group that was sleep deprived, instead of giving them testosterone, they actually just improved their sleep. So it took them from, I think, four hours to seven hours. And they, sh- and they saw that both groups at the end of a period of time, I believe it was six weeks, um, had equal testosterone levels. So, so you can see that correcting sleep can improve your testosterone levels. And that has the biggest impact. And and I can go into the whole physiology, physiology, physiology of it if you like me to. But basically, what we're seeing is when you sleep, you release growth factors to make testosterone. Don't See this, this, this. I just want to follow up on this because this is what I try to explain to people. Because 
they're so obsessed with testosterone levels that they're not even paying attention to, like you said, being over-caffeinated, which most people are. I mean, if Dunkin' Donuts were to close down, people would have a panic attack. It's happened. There's YouTube videos of this actually happening, by the way. It's like people have to have their coffee. If they don't, they're like freaking out. And then you have sleep. People are getting like four or five hours of sleep because they're working two jobs. They have a wife and three kids. They have to have three cars. They have to have their 16-year-old teenage daughter have a car. They have to have a mortgage on a huge house. So it's like people don't sleep. Right. And then they wonder why I can't get it up. And it's like, they like, oh, they just run to the doctor for testosterone. That's why I kind of said at the beginning, this is the bone I have to pick with Western doctors, is the over-medicated society that we've become. Instead of fixing the problems that we can fix, we choose to cover it up by going on testosterone replacement therapy. You have 20-year-olds going on TRT for life. Yeah. Because they're, oh, I can't get it up. Well, I'm sorry. There's going to be days you can't get it up. Why don't you focus on fixing your sleep? Why don't you fix, f- focus on fixing your lifestyle more? So that's why I said at the beginning, that's the bone I pick. And I feel like doctors, Western doctors specifically, this is why I like having people like you on the show. They're so obsessed with blood work because they'll, they'll have a patient do blood work and they'll have something off. And instead of fixing something in their life, the doctor wants to fix them with medication. And we're becoming like an overdrug society. And I see this kind of roller coaster. Do you see that happening as well? Or is it just me? No, I definitely agree with you. I think doctors chase numbers. And I actually just had a conversation with uh, a colleague uh, earlier this morning. And I said, you know, you look at numbers and you can correct the number, but you're not correcting the patient, right? So it's really important that we... uh, actually look at the individual and identify what the underlying causes is because I can give you a supplement, a drug to correct a number, but is that actually correcting the disease state? And unfortunately, as you know, you and a lot of your listeners are probably have learned, there's a dissatisfaction with conventional medicine. Um, and that is why, you know, naturopathic medicine and functional medicine has gained such, um, such gripping in, in, in medicine now is because people are actually getting better. The issue is that conventional doctors, and I actually have seen this even with integrated physicians, they will either not know how to read a blood test, so they don't really know what that number is saying, or there's a bias, right? So they will look at that number and then infer something based on that number that supports their bias. And I, I think the most important thing is to Number one, find a doctor or find a clinician who's agnostic and isn't going to implement their bias and is also going to look at the number based on the data that's available. Like, for example, the Endocrine Society says that if your testosterone levels are above 300 nanograms per deciliter, you're not considered hypogonadal. You're not considered, you're not considered to have low testosterone. Now, they also included the criteria that you have to show symptoms of hypogonadism or low testosterone. And I say, if the patient is showing symptoms of low testosterone, you need to rule out low testosterone. And even if their levels are normal, let's say they're 350, that's still not an optimal number because the symptoms are actually weighing in a lot more. And I, and my goal is to get somebody to feel better, not to correct their numbers. So Dr. Ralph, I was just scrolling through all the Instagram DMs I got with people asking questions. About 50% of them were about belly fat. Now, we often hear belly fat, that's the cortisol, that's the stress, that's the stress hormone. Mm-hmm. What is causing stubborn fat deposits around the midsection? Boy, that's like the million-dollar question, right? If I could invent something that would cure that, you some guys... Topical, some topical fat ab cream. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, guys, don't buy those things. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have seen. There's two things that kind of make me cringe when I'm at the gym: the people who wear those like things around their waist to make them sweat more, and thinking it's going to make them burn more fat, and then also like wearing a uh, a, a support belt when doing like curls or something like that. Which it's like okay. Never mind. Yesterday, I saw a guy wearing a weight belt while doing uh, lower back extensions. 
And I, I awesome. like, like, not only does that defeat the whole purpose, like, wouldn't that be so painful? Like, I can't I, imagine. But, but yeah, anyways, so again, there's, there's no, no one really knows, right? If someone knew this, they'd be the next richest man in the world. But what are your thoughts on what's causing stubborn body fat deposits in the midsection, particularly in men? Yeah. So number one, uh, this is going to sound very harsh, but people have no idea what good nutrition is. Uh, even people who say they're eating clean don't actually eat clean, right? And I don't even know what clean means. Um, about 70% of people over uh, underestimate the amount of calories that they're taking in. They cannot actually measure their macronutrients properly. Uh, my background, my undergrad is in nutrition. Uh, my doctorate is four years at doctorate level nutrition. I mean, I understand nutrition as good as anybody else. And I see it all the time. And even with myself, I, it, it's, it's difficult to measure macros. I get it. So that's number one. I think people are underestimating what they're actually eating. Secondly is, and you know, the, the other thing is, is we go into the hormonal aspect is, you know, people who actually eat clean and can't lose weight what do they do do they eat cleaner like there's how much and and, and i'm saying they're legitimately eating very healthy and their macronutrients are fine but they can't tend they can't seem to focus and lose that weight so there's two things high cortisol high cortisol and low thyroid the latter is typically ignored because they people just think well it's a stress thing and, and high cortisol levels are going to cause fat deposition in the belly area. And that's absolutely right. Cortisol will do that. It will also cause fat deposition in your neck, um, typically in women under their arms uh, or in their hips, and in men in the belly section. And that is because high cortisol levels are actually going to um, make you more insulin resistant. So then that's another hormone is insulin. And insulin resistance uh, is actually more common than we act, than we think it is. And people are assuming that their fasting blood glucose is less than 100 and their A1C is normal. And that means that their blood, uh, that they're insulin sensitive. And, and that's not true at all. Um, you can actually have a normal fasting blood glucose. You can have a normal hemoglobin A1C and still be insulin resistant uh, because you know you have to look at leptin levels. So very high leptin levels called leptin resistance, which will then stimulate more inflammation, which then feeds into the cortisol aspect. So a lot of this body weight that we're feeling uh, men are getting in their midsection is uh, from chronic inflammation, day-to-day chronic inflammation, like, uh, like the thing Steve was saying, you know, uh, increasing uh, your, or trying to work really hard, caffeine intake, um, and, and caffeine's fine, but if you're driving yourself to the ground and then using caffeine to recover, that's a problem. So you have to look at leptin, you have to look at insulin sensitivity, you have to look at cortisol levels, and you have to look at thyroid. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't know many physicians who are actually looking at all four of those and actually thinking, well, maybe this is playing a factor here. So what, what would you recommend? Like, let's say someone is that person who's, you know, eating relatively well, they're following mm-hmm. a sensible exercise program, but they have that stubborn body fat midsection. Is there any key supplements, maybe lifestyle changes for reducing inflammation, maybe like hot Epsom salt baths, yoga? Do you have any suggestions on easy ways to reduce inflammation? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is you have to figure out where the inflammation is coming from. And if it's a dietary factor, then an elimination diet is an essential tool to identify what food triggers might be contributing to your inflammation. So the most common is... um, Dairy, wheat, corn, um, and soy. So those are the the four major inflammatory foods that people are eating, and they may not feel it. They may not. They may think, "Well, I feel perfectly fine. My, you know, I don't feel any issues when I eat this, or I, or I uh, have a glass of milk." But it's actually causing a low grade inflammation, and you will see C reactive protein levels drop and. Um, you know, uh, other inflammatory markers like homocysteine, you'll see those drop as these mark, as these foods become um, the, uh, removed. Um, other things that you can utilize t- is to help control your cortisol levels. So you know, a big fan, I'm a big fan of adaptogens. So I utilize, you know, ashwagandha, rhodiola, 
Uh, Relora is a great adaptogen. Other nutrients like L-theanine, which is great at lowering cortisol levels, phosphatidylserine in the evening to lower cortisol levels. All of these nutrients, and by no means am I giving medical advice here. What I'm saying is, is it needs to be tailored to your biochemical individuality. So if you don't know your levels, if you don't know your numbers, if you don't know uh, if you're high in the morning or high in the afternoon, cortisol levels are high or low at particular times of the day, then you're really just taking a shot in the dark and hoping that something sticks, uh, which is why I think a very precise approach, so precision medicine is, is what I like to do, um, because it allows you to measure and know if you're on the right track rather than just, you know, throwing everything at the kitchen, uh, everything, uh, at, uh, what is it? Everything plus the kitchen sink. Yeah. I think elimination diets are something everybody should be doing. But I think, uh, sometimes people, you know, they'll do whatever it takes to accomplish their goal, especially us in the fitness industry. We're type A personalities, but for some reason we're lazy when it comes to food. And it's like, we, for some reason, we just want to listen to what the gurus on YouTube tell us we should be eating instead of trying new things on our own. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and you have bloat from food and stuff, absolutely elimination diets and get rid of those things that he mentioned because it makes a huge difference. I don't consume any of that shit anymore. And I have a flat, I wake up with a flat stomach every day. I don't have bloat during the day. My bowel movements are perfect. So you guys got to really, really dial this stuff in. It's not just about eating chicken, rice, and broccoli eight times a day. So on that note, tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, – go ahead, Trevor. I was just going to jump in. I was going to say, you know, Dr. Ralph gave the four main inflammatory foods, dairy, corn, soy, um, and wheat. But even foods that are considered, you know, quote-unquote clean foods can cause inflammation. I know a lot of people actually have major food sensitivities to egg whites and eggs. So – Definitely eliminate the four Dr. Ralph said, but also put on your detective hat. There might be something else. Oatmeal is another one. Oatmeal bloats a lot of people. Egg whites bloat a lot of people. So a lot of these typical bodybuilding foods might actually do more harm than good. I agree. Steve, you had a question for Dr. Ralph? Yeah, on that note, tell us a little bit about fasting. What kind of fasting protocols are you doing with your with your patients? So there's a very big trend on uh, intermittent fasting now and, and everybody and their mother seems to be on board with, you know, following a time restricted feeding schedule. And I'm actually a fan of it. I do think time restricted feeding, basically not eating for 16 hours a day, 18 hours, some days, um, has a lot of benefits. It will, um, give the bowel, the bowel system. So your gastrointestinal tract can give it some rest. So, you know, people who are constantly eating 24 hours a day or, you know, 18 hours a day, basically from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed are not giving their intestinal tract some time to rest and recover. So I, I am a fan of it in using that aspect. Um, there, the research suggesting that intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, you know, 16, eight or 18, six, uh, reduces body fat or reduces, uh, weight is actually inconsistent. And, uh, we're finding that the, uh, the benefits of intermittent fasting are not necessarily uh, from its ability to promote weight loss. So you're not losing more weight those 16 hours that you're fasting. What we're finding is that the individuals who are noticing benefits from intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding is from eating less total calories throughout the whole day, right? So if I tell you you can only eat two meals within six hours or eight hours, you're, you're less likely, and those who, who are having uh, benefits from this are less likely to overeat, and they have the discipline to not you know, gorge on their first meal. Uh, but intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding as a tool to lose weight is, is not something that I would recommend to people, uh, mostly because the research shows that really what it comes down to is making sure that you uh, focus your meal plan around um, proper macronutrient ratios, uh, but in, in conjunction with your hormonal makeup. Now, intermittent fasting, uh, people overdo it. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are probably, you know, not eating from 12 or eating only from 12 to 8 p.m. Uh, or sometimes even later. So they'll go to bed. The last meal is like, you know, 6 p.m. And they're exercising, fasted, 
they won't be eating after they exercise and they think, well, this is part of my fasting period. And what you're doing is, is you're causing havoc on your hormonal system because you're introducing an additional stressor. You're introducing more exercise, you're, you're introducing famine and uh, you're causing fluctuations in your glycine or your glucose levels, which has an impact on your stress response. So uh, I, I love intermittent fasting. I practice time-restricted feeding myself, but it needs to be timed in the proper in the proper way so that it's not does not become an additional stressor, but actually becomes a rest and recovery period. I love. I agree with everything you said, Doctor Al. Talk to us about HCG. Wait, 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 Trevor, come on. Let's talk, let's talk. Can we, can I ask one question on that? Sure, right. absolutely. Okay. Um, before we move on to the next topic, what about more like prolonged fasting, like 24 hour, 36 hour, three day, five day? Do you know anything about those? I do. So are you talking about improving body for improving body composition for whatever you're telling your clients to do for um, digestion, autophagy, et cetera, et cetera, ins better insulin sensitivity. What are some of the things that you're, you're having your clients do with that respect? Because I do, you know, I'll do, I think the last time I got like a cold, this was like a month ago. Um, my girlfriend and I both woke up with a sore throat. She went on antibiotics. I did a three-day fast. After three days, I, had, I was cured. And after three days, it took her an extra week even on antibiotics to get cured. So I'm a big believer in like prolonged fasting to fix, like to boost immune system and autophagy and stuff. Is that something that you know much about? Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Uh, Walter Longo has done a lot of research and Sachin Panda has done an immense amount of research on time-restricted feeding and prolonged fasting or hypocaloric diets as, um, as Dr. Walter Longo does. And yeah, the research is pretty convincing that when you fast for prolonged periods of time, you actually work by uh, inhibiting mTOR, which is a molecular marker in the body, which can uh, lead to pro or when it's over-regulated, it can lead to issues in longevity. So fasting does help regulate mTOR and AMPK. And that's why you know, people love metformin um, for longevity, although I'm not convinced that that's the, you know, the miracle drug just yet. But yes, uh, prolonged fasting, I think the benefits from fasting come from uh, at least three days. I think doing a 24-hour fast can be helpful for your gastrointestinal tract, but in terms of impacting immune function, I don't know if one day is absolutely enough. Uh, put Two days would probably be better. I think you need at least three days in order for there to be some type of metabolic response, depending on your current uh, nutrient stores and your current stress levels. So if you have somebody who's overstressed and you fast them for five days, um, they potentially can get more stress, which then can cause more issues. Now, it seems like you responded really well, but if you had somebody who's, who's, who was hypercortisolemic, who had high cortisol levels, and then you fasted them and you increase their cortisol levels even more, assuming that they did, now you're causing a, you could possibly cause a decrease in the immune response. So it really depends on where the person is in their, uh, in their health uh, uh, journey, right? It does, it, does, it does for sure stress you out because people don't realize this. I actually vlogged these prolonged fasts. My blood pressure on a prolonged fast went sky high. My heart rate went sky high. And people think, oh, when you're fasting, that wouldn't happen. I was actually stressing my body, which is the point of a prolonged fast. And after I came off the fast, then that's when the benefits came. But like during my fast, I actually got blood work done. My white blood cell count cratered during my prolonged fast. And that's something, yeah, people, that. and that's something people like don't understand about fasting. They don't understand the big picture of it in that when you come off, you get these fresh white blood cells. So that kind of boosts your immune system there. But yeah, if you're out of shape, do not do a prolonged fast. Absolutely. I I'm completely agree with you. Like get in shape first and then you can do a prolonged fast. I don't recommend anyone do a prolonged fast who's in poor shape. This is, this is my bone to pick with intermittent fasting is that, you know, you'll Google intermittent fasting and you'll read some article, you know, say intermittent fasting promotes cell autophagy, it promotes increases in human growth hormone, it increases in muscle insulin sensitivity, and then they'll cite a bunch of articles. If you actually read those scientific journals, when it shows increases in human growth hormone, when it shows improvements in AMPK, improvements in cell autophagy, those are prolonged fasts. 
Those are three-day fast, four-day fast, five-day fast. I think intermittent fasting is a great way to reduce calories. So if your goal is just to lose body weight, I think it's a great way to reduce calories because by consuming less meals, you will consume less calories. But in order to actually get the benefits of fasting, you need to be doing a greater than 24-hour fast. I mean, a 16-8 fast, you're basically skipping breakfast and lunch. Like you're not really fasting. Like you skip like two meals. Is that, is that what you think too, Dr. Ralph? I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, the thing that people tend to misunderstand is when they're doing these studies on fasting, um, number one, a lot of the, the subjects were obese. Um, and a lot, and a lot of it was on animal studies. And when they're comparing growth hormone levels, uh, their, your growth hormone levels are going to drop while you fast. It, it's a normal physiologic response. And as Steve mentioned, you know, your white blood cells could potentially drop. And also your thyroid will go into the trash. Uh, your thyroid levels will drop because you're not eating. You don't need thyroid hormone. So a lot of this is, is cyclical changes, which can be beneficial. And, you know, we've seen this in traditional cultures, in the traditional Chinese medicine. Fasting is part of the culture. In, um, in Ram, in, uh, for Ramadan, people fast, you know, sunrise to sunset. Um, and during Lent, uh, you know, Christians or Catholics will, will not eat for periods of time. Uh, in um, Ayurveda, Ayurvedic medicine, they promoted prolonged fasting as well. So a lot of these things are already known and already um, basically uh, part of a traditional medicine. Now we're just in the 21st century where we have technology that allows us to measure these things a little bit better and, and be more precise in what we do. I just want to add this too. I think the insulin sensitivity thing is helped by intermittent fasting because I used to be one of those people. So that's one of the best benefits of it because I used to be one of those people. I used to have to have carbs like every two hours or I'd like have no energy. And then I started training myself with fasting going long periods without food. And now I don't, I don't give a shit. I can go the whole day without food. It doesn't affect me. So I do think you train your body when you're eating every two hours you're training your body to be, you're basically putting yourself more insulin resistant. I know because I was one of those people. And if you ever see the show Naked and Afraid, have you seen that show, Dr. Ralph? I haven't, no. Okay, so Naked and Afraid, you go out in the middle of nowhere for 21 days, you have to survive. And you notice if you watch the show, there's a trend. These big meatheads who are like <laughs> eating a ton of calories every day, you would think they'd be the ones that survive the longest but they don't last the day. It's the skinny hippie types that last the whole 21 days because those skinny hippie types are used to like not, they're not, or they're not insulin resistant, but the big meatheads are insulin resistant. So they can't even survive a day without basically tapping out. They can't take it anymore because they got to have, they got to have food. They got to have carbs, they got to have protein. And you just don't get that when you're on the show. So, I mean, that's real life experiences. We actually had a guy come on the show who was on that and he actually lost, I think, 40 pounds on, in 21. And he lost 40 pounds in 40 days. They did a 40 day challenge. So he talked a little bit about that. And um, so, I mean, that's kind of fascinating if, if, if you watch the show. But I mean, that's just, that's just my experience. So, I mean, look, guys, if you want to intermittent fast, do it. If you don't, stick to, your, stick to every two hour eating. I mean... And uh, that's how it is. But I think that, um, you know, American society, I don't think we have type 2 diabetes rising because we're intermittent fasting. I think we have type 2, right, type two diabetes rising because we're eating too often. We're eating every hour, every two hours. We got food in our fridge. We got food in our pantry that we're picking at all day. And mm -hmm. I see this all the time. How many people you go to their house, you look at their pantry, it's all cookies and snacks. They're, they're, they're like eating every two hours. Their, their fridge, their freezer is full of five different ice creams. I think that we're an over, we, we eat too much and we exercise too much to make up for it. And in a country like Denmark, they don't eat a lot. They eat two meals a day and they don't exercise yet. They don't have type two diabetes and heart disease. Is there like a connection there or am I missing something? You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the expert in that epidemiology. Um, I don't really subscribe a lot to the correlation of what I see. So just because the risk of uh, diabetes is lower in Denmark doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, it has to do directly with their diet. 
you know, we see a lot of correlation. So I can't say for sure, but I certainly can say that standard American diet is not helping anybody. So Dr. Ralph, we're pretty much at our hour here. Um, I'm going to put your social media in the show notes. So definitely for our listeners, follow him on social media. He's posting really interesting stuff all the time. HCG, we've gotten lots of questions on the HCG diet. HCG, mm-hmm. a lot of doctors are prescribing it with their testosterone replacement therapy. What is HCG and what are your thoughts on it? HCG is a hormone, which is an analog of uh, luteinizing hormone. And it has a very similar structure to luteinizing hormone, uh, which is the hormone in the brain that actually tells your testes to make testosterone. And HCG binds to the same receptors and basically just mimics that. And uh, I'm not a fan of combining testosterone replacement therapy with HCG, although I understand why men are doing it because uh, testosterone replacement therapy can basically shut off your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis and can cause testicular atrophy. So some men do do it for that. But I don't think there's any physiologic benefit of adding HCG with testosterone, uh, exogenous testosterone. But HCG uh, can be used on an off cycle. So when you stop testosterone, uh, you should either uh, figure out ways to replenish or uh, recalibrate your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis because testosterone will turn off your brain's um, or will turn off the brain's ability to make its own luteinizing hormone, which will then, when you stop testosterone, you won't be able to make your own testosterone. So HCG is a way to uh, kickstart your testes to make testosterone when they're actually completely shut off from testosterone use. Uh, and it's also used as a fertility agent because it will increase sperm um, uh, spermatogenesis. So it'll make more sperm, more motility, more, better morphology. If you're, using, if you're using HCG for that purpose, though, aren't you delaying recovery? Because your pituitary glands, when you're on the HCG, is not going to, still going to be suppressed because you're basically skipping over the pituitary glands, you're mimicking the LH and you're stimulating your testes without your pituitary glands kicking off. So aren't you just delaying the process of recovery? You see what I'm saying? It, it possibly can delay the process because it will increase testosterone levels and testosterone will go back and feed back into the pituitary gland. Uh, but the other option is having complete withdrawals from testosterone and having testosterone withdrawals, which can lead to depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thoughts, um, erectile dysfunction. It's, it's how much. Are you gonna, but how, aren't you going to like, how are you supposed to recover though? Like it will recover. It, it will recover. Okay. So you're saying you like HCG supplementation. So you're saying you use the HCG for like a soft landing then gradually come off and then right. have the HPA come back. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. You're, a, you're, and you're willing you're, to sacrifice a little delay in, in the recovery to do that. Versus yeah, absolutely. Instead of using a Well, a selective estrogen receptor modulator will have no impact on the HPA axis, HPG axis. It binds to the, uh, the, I'm sorry, CIRM, uh, sorry, I thought you had said SARM. SARM, like Clomid, will actually have a similar effect as well. So you can use either one. Okay. Really, really interesting stuff, Dr. Ralph. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, maybe reach out to you for coaching or anything like that. Where can our listeners find more about you? Sure. You can find me on basically on Instagram is where I'm most active. It's at dr.ralphesposito or my website, drralphesposito.com and the same handle on Twitter. Cool. I'll have all that in the show notes. Definitely give them a follow on Instagram. He posts a lot of really interesting stuff and a lot of stuff that you won't find anywhere else. Like it's not just the same bro science, chicken and rice. Like it's actually really, really interesting stuff. So Dr. Ralph, keep, keep it up on the Instagram, keep doing what you're doing. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. For your host, Trevor Kritzen, for my co-host, Steve Smee, and for our special guest, Dr. Ralph Esposito, to another episode of Evolutionary Radio, Live Your Life, Look Good Doing It. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.